This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Hi, everyone. People often ask how they can support more great stories from the wild. Thank you for asking. The Wild is a joint production of myself and KUOW Public Radio, and you can support this vital work and become part of the Wild community by checking out our show notes. There you'll find information about supporting my wildlife organisation, Chris Morgan Wildlife, through Patreon. Help fuel the next adventure. Okay, enjoy the episode. That's a serious, serious pull. It probably goes out 20 feet, does it? A 20-foot pole for your microphone is important when you're trying to record this creature. Nobody this way. You will stay out of the strike reach of any snake. <laughs> yeah, so just a couple things, briefly. Okay. So speaking of strikes... Oh, so, hang on, hang on. So let me get yeah. this as well. As, is it, uh, how's it sounding, Matt? It sounds good. Our producer, Matt Martin, and I are here in northern Washington state... We've met up with two wildlife biologists who study and care for the local rattlesnakes. So it should go without saying, but I'll say it anyway. So rattlesnakes are venomous, and their bite will um, can inflict harm on humans. And so we want to do everything we can not to get not to get bit. And they've invited us to visit a den where dozens of snakes are starting to emerge from hibernation. An opportunity to learn about these misunderstood creatures these sonic icons of the Wild West. But first, we're given a little warning. So if, if by chance, one of us are uh, bit by a rattlesnake and we are envenomated, we'll have to go to Brewster. So Brewster is the nearest hospital that has antivenin. So that's like an hour and a half drive. But um, you probably won't die, but it'll be painful. And if you don't have insurance, it'll be very expensive. <laughs> How's the traffic between here and Brewster usually? (laughs) From KUOW in Seattle, I'm Chris Morgan. Welcome to the wild, the Wild West. I've always loved snakes. As a kid, I'd drive my family crazy flipping over every log in the hopes of finding a grass snake or an adder on our walks in the English countryside. I even had a pet snake at university, Gary. Gary the garter snake, but never a rattler. Hey, Scott. How are you? I'm good. Nice to see you. Hey, John. Morning. How are you? Good morning. Our rattlesnake guides today are Scott Fitkin from the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife and John Rohr from the U.S. Forest Service. They both share a passion for the northern Pacific rattlesnake. They've invited us to spend the day with them. We gather up our recording gear to get ready to head out, but John stops us with another important guideline. Most important thing, so my wife's going to listen to this. So if I inadvertently swear... Will you promise to delete that book? I can't promise. I can't promise that, John. <laughs> Damn it. Yeah. 
To be honest, my biggest concern is not John swearing. It's getting bitten by a rattlesnake. But John puts things into perspective. He says every year about 9,000 people in the United States are bitten, envenomated by venomous snakes. And of those 9,000, only about five people die, usually as a result of pre-existing conditions. That's all venomous snakes, not just rattlers. But our goal today is to not become a statistic, to avoid a trip to Brewster. And we're in good hands with Scott and John. They've been working up close and personal with rattlesnakes for over 20 years, and they've never been bitten. If you get bit, it's most likely going to be on your foot or your lower leg. And so we've all got leather boots on. That's good. Um, I like to wear thick, thicker pants. Uh, you just be careful where you put your feet, and especially where you put your hands. Well, let me grab my tongs here. All right. <clears throat> and with that advice, we throw our packs on, grab our microphones, and start to scramble up a steep slope through the pine trees just off the side of the road. John and Scott don't want me to disclose exactly where. They'll explain why later. The morning's chilly, about 50 degrees. Not the ideal temperature for rattlesnakes yet. There are still patches of snow on the ground. This area of Washington state is where northern ecosystems meet southern ones. They kind of blend here. One of the really cool things about this area, about the North Cascades, Methow Valley in general, is that we have the, we're at the southernmost range of boreal species and the northernmost range of desert species. Yeah. And they're, they're like right here. And of course, it's the desert side of things that snakes are here for. The snakes are around, but they won't be moving much. Snakes are cold-blooded. Their bodies can't regulate their temperature. So 50 degrees outside means a snake's body temperature is, well, 50 degrees. They'll be looking for patches of sun to warm up in. Northern Pacific rattlesnakes den communally in an underground chamber called a hibernaculum, a place to overwinter. These dens can have 30 snakes living together, sometimes more. Scientists aren't sure why they do this, but John has a theory. A good den is hard to find. It's got to be a place where a snake can survive for seven months during winter without freezing to death. So, you know, they obviously they got to get below the frost line, which up here is probably at least six feet deep. They still got to breathe. They don't want rainwater, can't be filtering down on them. Melting snow can't be filtering down on them. So I think they're unique spots. Snakes also need to be able to warm up quickly once they leave the den. So the ideal den is south-facing to get the most sun exposure. Once a snake finds a den, it becomes its base for life, never usually wandering more than a mile from its home, which to me still seems quite far for a creature with no legs. And when they do leave, Scott says snakes have a unique way of finding their way back to the hibernaculum. Well, snakes um, have a pretty good sense of smell, or really it's more like smell-taste combined, and they can scent trail back to, to the den because you've got all these snake paths coming, radiating from the den, and snakes even, even way away, even a mile away. If it's a male, it can pick up the scent trail of a female or it can pick up the scent trail of another snake headed back to the den. Um, you know, and they're, they're smelling with their tongues, tasting particles in the air with their tongues tasting particles in the air with their tongues. Just one of several amazing characteristics rattlers have honed over the last 10 million years or so. 
With humans now in their world, life can be a bit more difficult for rattlesnakes. John and Scott work a lot with nuisance northern Pacific rattlesnakes, snakes that have wandered away from their dens and maybe ended up in somebody's yard or under a porch. They'll go in, they'll pick up the snake and relocate them to a hibernaculum like the one we're approaching. We're almost there. We walk up the slope, over lots of rotten logs and shaly rocks. More than ever, I'm conscious of every step I take. As we come out of the trees into a clearing of bigger rocks and boulders, Scott steps in front of me. So, we're really close. Let John go first and scope it out and see if he can see that snake at the den entrance and so we don't scare it. Okay. John walks ahead and peers around a boulder towards the entrance to the den. I take a quick glance at my boots, just in case. I love snakes, but standing on top of a den where there might be several dozen rattlers is enough to make anyone a bit cautious. Oh, there he is, there he is. John's found one, right where he hoped. Oh, man. John takes a pair of long metal tongs and reaches forward at arm's length really slowly and grips the snake gently about a third of the way down its body. You might need to get a better grip on him here. I think I got him. The snake is slow right now because it's cold. It makes catching them easier. He waves us over and we head towards the rocks to join him. Just like that, a rattlesnake. Wow. God, you made that look easy, John. <laughs> He's lethargic. Oh my God, that's beautiful. Oh, stunning. I didn't expect it to be so green. What beautiful colours. It seems like the older they get, the greener they get, too. Really? Yeah. So rarely, yeah, this, this is a um, unusually large northern Pacific rattlesnake. I'm not too close, am I? No, you're fine. No, you're right. He's really slow because it's cold today. He, I'm surprised he's not rattling. Yeah, I think his, his shaker muscles are cold. Yeah, I think so, too. When Scott and John catch a rattlesnake, they insert a pit tag. It's like a mini transponder the size of a grain of rice that they inject under the skin. The tag has a unique code that can identify the snake with the help of a reader, just like reading the code on a can of beans at the grocery store. It doesn't work for tracking snakes like a radio collar. The snake has to be in hand. So it's more like a name tag, but it allows John and Scott to monitor which snakes are in which dens and to learn about them. And the big guy in John's hands right now? He's an old familiar face. His pit tag confirms. It's Smog. We like to name the really big ones. Just because it's fun. Why Smog? Smog. The dragon. The dragon from the hobbits. Right. We'd used a couple of Lord of the Rings names before and we thought, you know, that's another appropriate. Smog seemed to be a good choice. Rattlesnakes can typically live 10 to 25 years. They estimate that Smog is about 30 years old. So he's most likely the oldest snake in this den. He's about four feet long, this gorgeous, subtle blend of olive greens, greys and browns, with yellowish bands. And he has this broad, diamond-shaped head. Yeah, that's one of the signatures. When you're looking at a snake in this part of the world and you want to know what species it is, that's a giveaway. That big, wide, triangular head is characteristic of rattlesnakes because that's the the venom glands are like back there at the back of the jaw and that's why his head's wide like that. Gotcha. 
The jaws are attached with stretchy ligaments that allow them to open their mouths really wide, wide enough to swallow something twice as big as their heads. Northern Pacific rattlesnakes prey on deer mice and other rodents, squirrels and even small rabbits, and they have a very unique way of finding their prey. Okay, that was pretty incredible, John. You moved down slope a little bit then, and he tracked your every move, didn't he? His, his head followed you around. So, you know, they have, they're, they're pit vipers, so they have these pits. So you can see it's a, it's a hole in between his eye and his nostril on both sides. And those are heat-detecting pits, <clears throat> and they can detect a temperature difference of 0 0.002 degrees. Wow. They see their world. I mean, they have eyesight. They see it as us, but they see it also as um, different amounts of heat. So he probably sees my profile as a 98.6 degree thing in a um, landscape of 50 degrees. So I probably, all of us, just stand out. Like, like a thermal imaging camera. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. exactly. A thermal imaging camera is a complicated piece of high-end technology. People like the military use it. It's incredible to think that a rattlesnake has it built in and sees the world this way. These pit organs help the snakes strike their prey accurately, especially in the dark. Rattlesnakes have evolved over millions of years across the West, and they play an important role in the ecosystem. For example, they help control the rodent population. These rodents can sometimes carry hunter virus and Lyme disease that can be very dangerous for humans. Still, rattlesnakes have been persecuted and even killed for sport. Even though the threat is low, people fear for their livestock and pets in rattlesnake country. As a wildlife biologist, John has heard a lot of stories over the years about how rattlesnakes have been treated. A couple of these old-timers were telling me about rattlesnake dens that, that they used to go to, um, to raid. And I heard stories about dens being vandalized. You know, people would um, pour gasoline down them and then throw a match in there or plug the entrance with concrete. I've actually heard that. Or just do something physical to destroy the den site to, so the rattlesnakes wouldn't be there anymore. Mm. And I heard, I heard of several incidents incidences of that and so that just got me interested in thinking okay are we are, you know are snakes in trouble here um, and so that's kind of what got us started on doing what we're doing. John and Scott just felt compelled to step in they're not required to do this work as part of their wildlife biologist jobs and never were but 25 years ago they saw the need they got hooked on the snakes and began to monitor them sometimes relocating them away from human conflict areas and helping people understand them. They talk to school kids, livestock owners, people recreating out in rattlesnake country, all part of their mission for this misunderstood snake. So, so the safe way to handle snakes is to tube them. It's called tubing them, putting them in these transparent tubes. Scott has some variety of sizes. You use one that so you get the head and the upper part of the body in this tube and then you just hold him there so he can't um, get at you. So that's what we're going to do right now. John grabs a transparent handling tube from his kit and places it down on the ground next to Smog's head. And right away, Smog slithers in. So now Smog's head and the upper half of his four-foot body is in the tube and his back half is hanging out. Almost on cue, Smog starts to rattle. 
all I, all I can think about. Look, can I touch him? Oh, absolutely. Oh yeah, he's as cold as the breeze. <laughs> oh my goodness. The longer we hold him, the warmer he'll get. So maybe he'll uh, rev up a little bit. He does have what looks like recent, a recent scar right there. Something tried to grab him. John carefully hands Smog over to me. I never imagined ever being this close to a rattlesnake, especially a big mature male like this one. I'm holding him in the tube with one hand and the rest of his body with my other, and he feels like a, like a cold, tightly wrapped burrito. And because his head end is in the tube, as long as I keep a firm grip, it's completely safe. I go in for a closer look. Our faces are now just inches apart, and... Smog is looking at me. He's got this deep eyebrow, that perfect serpent face. And his pupil is narrow and vertical, flickering his black tongue. It's completely mesmerizing. And then... He lets out a breath. Snakes breathe. (laughs) They have lungs. Of course they do. But I never thought I'd hear it. His body inflates as he takes another deep breath. Smog has been underground for the last seven months. For all we know, this could be his first day above ground. His colour is a little dull, not as vivid as it can be. That's because he's had the same skin all winter. Rattlesnakes around here shed their skin just once a year. It comes off in one full piece like an inverted sock and each time reveals a really beautiful, rich colour. And it's when they shed their skin that they add new segments to their rattlers, which helps biologists estimate the age of the snake from the number of segments. So I got a question. What's the, like, what's the mechanics of the rattle? Like, how does the rattle actually... Like, what's inside of it? Or, like, how does that work? So they're just interlocking segments of... Um it's keratin, just like fingernails. So they're loosely interconnected. And, you know, he's got a shaker muscle. The muscles in the tail are called shaker muscles, so they can vibrate 50 times per second. And that's just what um, that rapid shaking just makes the buzzing sound. Part of their scientific name is crotalus. It comes from the Greek word meaning little bell. The little bells, the rattles, are dead parts of their skin. I have to say, I find the sound totally transfixing. Maybe it's something to do with our evolution. Listening out for that sound kept humans alive. The tail is also useful for something else. While the snake is in the handling tube, John and Scott can figure out if it's a male or a female by looking at the length of the tail. And their tail is measured from the vent or their cloaca, which is underneath this big scale right here, to the end or the bottom of the rattle there. If it's long, it's a boy, and if it's a short tail, it's a girl. And the reason for that is uh, snakes snakes have what are called hemipenes, essentially a double penis, and they those uh, organs are in sheaths on either side of the tail. So a male's tail is longer to accommodate that. Huh. So you Not can only longer, but thicker. But thicker, yeah. So when you females. when you look. Like when, if this were a, whoa, 
squirted you. Did he? Oh. Yeah. Wow, I just got peed on by a rattlesnake. It came right at my face. Yeah, really? You're gonna smell bad. Why has he done that? Is that a stress thing or? Yeah, that's like this is another defensive mechanism. He didn't, he didn't warn us about that. I forgot about that. Start talking about his reproductive In case you're wondering, Smog was a male, and yes, I did end up smelling like rattlesnake pee for the rest of the day. A small price to pay for the chance to see a rattlesnake so close up. Within pee shot. (laughs) With all the checks done, Scott gently places the tube down and lets Smog wriggle out. It's quite something to see this snake back on the rocks and leaves in its natural habitat. Smog slowly slides underground. Scott and John tell me about another hibernaculum, one that's not just popular with rattlesnakes, but rock climbers too. We'll head there after the break, and we'll learn more about the 25-year mission these guys have been on to change hearts and minds. Oh, and I try some snake wrangling myself. At SoundSide, we bring you news and conversation rooted in the Pacific Northwest. Hi, I'm Libby Denkman. I think of my job hosting SoundSide as, number one, asking tough questions of powerful people, the questions you, KUOW listeners, want answered. And two, bringing you a daily slice of the fascinating, confounding, and often goofy side of life in Washington State. Join me for SoundSide at noon and 8 p.m. on KUOW or anytime on the SoundSide podcast. Oh, I see some rocky slopes. Yeah, we're getting into snake country. Ah, you've taught me well. <laughs> yeah. I would never look at that normally and go, oh yeah, that looks like rattlesnake country. That'd be the furthest thing from my mind. No, that's looking good. That's cool. Nice and sunny up there. We've made our way up a tricky slope of loose rocks and shale to get to a spot at the base of a tall cliff. There's a great view of the valley below. Oh, beautiful. Wow. Tall cliffs up there. Oh, stunning. Climber's heaven. As this became a popular spot, we had some local climbers telling us they were seeing a lot of snakes in a particular area along this wall. And so about this time of year, we came out and started poking around. And we were fortunate and were able to find where the den was. Huh. Thanks to a rock climber tipping you off. Exactly. Yep. This hibernaculum is particularly important for Scott and John to monitor because it's heavily used by humans too. Like at other hibernacula, the snakes aren't scattered over a wide area. They emerge from one small opening, about a foot, maybe a foot and a half wide, under a boulder. That's the entrance to their den. The females in this den would have each given birth to four to 21 young last fall, and they're all about to come out for summer. It's still a little chilly, and we don't see any snakes, even though we waited till midday to get here. So it becomes the all-too-familiar biologist's waiting game. Only one thing to do. So we got better seating up here. Maybe we eat lunch up here, try to kick back for half an hour or so, and see who comes out. This is my kind of field work. (laughs) Just watch where you put your hands and feet here. Yeah, like literally every step at this point, I (laughs) guess, huh? Correct. Oh, this is a spot, man. This is a great spot. 
We sit on top of some rocks about 15 feet from the den entrance. Any closer and we might prevent the rattlesnakes from emerging. They can feel even the tiniest vibrations on the ground through sensory nerves in their skin. We don't want to spook them. Hopefully they can't hear my chips. As we tuck into our sandwiches, Scott explains how a rattlesnake goes about getting its lunch. I was thinking, you know, how would you encapsulate rattlesnake life in one word? And I think it would be patience. Typically, if you're a snake, you set up somewhere and you sit and you wait for your prey to come to you. They don't, rattlesnakes typically don't do a lot of active searching. They just find a good spot where they can thermoregulate pretty well that's got some cover. And they just wait by a mouse trail or, you know, a rodent pathway and and wait for dinner to come to them. So they have to be infinitely patient. John told us about a snake that he'd been tracking. The snake curled up next to a bush and waited. It was cold and drizzling rain. He did not move for six days. Mm. Every day I would go and he was coiled up in the exact same spot next to the exact same bush for six solid days and never moved. That's patience. That's patience. (laughs) That's it. That is impressive. And when you think about someone like Smog, who's lived for decades, maybe 30 years, that's a lot of waiting. That's a lot of waiting. That's a lot of solid years, if you want to put it all together. It, it, uh, it puts our year of COVID in perspective. You know, we're all going stir-crazy, and these snakes are like, oh, you guys don't know the half of it. The irony isn't lost on us as we sit there, trying to be patient, waiting for a snake that's patiently waiting for its lunch. There's another reason a snake has learned to keep still hiding near a bush or camouflaged among the rocks because they have predators too and keeping absolutely still is a way to avoid being eaten golden eagles bobcats and especially red-tailed hawks all of them include rattlesnakes in their diet of course if the rattlesnake is spotted by a predator they have a backup their trusty back the hell off alarm system it's warmed up a bit so Scott gets up to check the entrance of the den. Okay, I'm going to take a little peek over here. He creeps up to the boulder, down the slope where the den entrance is, and gingerly peeks over to see if any snakes have come out. Yeah, I can see one. It's pretty much all the way out. I can see the head. I slowly move towards him, careful not to dislodge any rocks and strain to see where Scott's looking. There's this first big rock, right, Scott? Say, say again? This first one. Yeah, see where that tuft of grass is? Yeah. They're right under that grass, basically. Oh, yeah. It takes a moment. They blend in so well. And then I see them. Two rattlesnakes, maybe more, coiled together, warming their bodies in the early afternoon sun. One of them's tiny, a baby snake, born in the fall, which makes it about seven months old. It can't even rattle yet. Scott moves in closer to catch the adult. He's got his tongues at the ready. Oh, he's moving. He's moving, Scott. Okay. Let's try to grab him. That's tricky in the clump of glass. Oh, what a beauty. He's browner than the other. Oh, so beautiful. And just like that, he's got him. The snake coils with a couple of big squirms. Let's see. I think this tube's about the right size. And just like that, whoa, whoa, shoot. Scott drops the rattlesnake on my boot. (laughs) So much for staying out of striking distance. Sorry about that. 
<laughs> but in a second, he gets the snake under control. A true rattlesnake <laughs> professional, thankfully. Okay. Scott hands me a handling tube and asks me to get the snake into it. You remember yesterday that once he's in the tube, the trick is to hold on to the tube and the snake at the same time? Yeah. Remember how we did that? That's what you're going to want to do with your other hand when the okay. time comes. Come on, buddy. That's good. Just keep easing it on. Keep going. Oh, that's excellent. Keep going. Oh, nice. Okay, now tilt the tube up and pin him a little bit. Uh, lift your hand. Lift your hand. Like this? Like that. Yep. Pin him yep. against the ground. Gotcha. There you go. Once I get the snake in the tube, Scott sees she's a female. Seems pretty relaxed. He gives her a visual check. She's in good health, including her bright new skin for the summer. We let her go, and after a minute or two, she slowly slithers into the darkness, under the rock, back to her den. Scott and John have been monitoring this den site for a while now, and this rattlesnake community appears to be pretty healthy. A big part of that is because of growing tolerance and cooperation from people like the climbers who use this rock wall. There's a big sign attached to a tree near the den that says the climbing wall is temporarily closed until early May. By, by putting this up, it's kind of a dual safety measure. It's safety for the snakes, so they have time to leave their hibernaculus safely and disperse to their summer hunting grounds, and safety uh, for the sake of the climbers so that they don't end up stepping on a snake inadvertently and potentially getting bitten. As attitudes towards rattlesnakes change, they have a chance to stabilize or even grow in numbers in some places. It's happening, slowly. Scott says that another thing that could be helping the rattlesnake population might actually be climate change. We have a lot of species locally that are kind of in trouble with respect to climate change, and, but, but snakes are kind of at the opposite end of that spectrum. With a warming climate, that could actually expand the range of our reptile species um, and, and certainly expand the seasons that they're active. So that, I mean, it's, it's kind of nice to have maybe a little bit of a positive story to associate with, with climate change. Yeah. And John and Scott's goals for human-wildlife coexistence go beyond rattlesnakes. North-central Washington is becoming more populated, so teaching newcomers how to live with wildlife is a huge priority for them. And I think it's part of a broader uh, issue with just living with wildlife in general. A lot of these people that come here, I mean, living with cougars is a new thing, living with rattlesnakes, you know, there's a laundry list of species, even the deer present challenges for some people. And yet, the, I think the payoffs are huge when you learn to live with wildlife. There's, for me, wildlife is just such an enriching thing. To watch wild animals go about their business is what feeds my soul. So I, um, to me, they're, they're, it's always worthwhile figuring how to, out how to live with critters because you get a lot back in return. And it's working. One conversation and one rattlesnake at a time. Even with those who are less easy to convince, like some of the long-term residents of the area, and those who'd sooner kill the rattlesnakes. John tells us about a cowboy he used to work with. And, I mean, it was a, it was a whole deal. I mean, he'd come to work wearing cowboy boots and um, a big hat and a handkerchief around his neck and a big belt buckle, and he hated rattlesnakes. But he worked with me every day, and so we would see each other every day, and so he'd hear about what I was doing, and he'd start to question and and ask me, okay, why are you doing that with those, you know, sons of bitching, whatever. And uh, one day, he comes into the office, the other technical technicians have already gone home, and I can tell he's waiting around before he leaves for the day. He goes, hey, John, I want to tell you something. 
but you can't tell anybody else. All right. Well, I saw a rattlesnake today. I said, really? Cool. He goes, yeah. I didn't kill it. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> I saw a rattlesnake and I didn't kill it. Which just, was like a I first wanted, for him. Yeah. I wanted you to know that. Wow. <laughs> but don't tell anybody. <laughs> I really like that. John and Scott will continue to put in the extra time, answering calls from people who encounter rattlesnakes, relocating them safely to dens, looking out for both the reptiles and the humans. And what's really clear from the time we've spent with them is that these are guys who love their jobs. I mean, we've had days, literally, I think, where we were on snowmobiles doing something with wolverines one day, and a couple days later, we're checking on a rattlesnake den. Do you have the best jobs in the world? Yeah. Pretty much. Most days. Other than, except for yours. <laughs> I think yours is better. You've got the... Ver- you get paid for doing this? <laughs> if you live in an area with rattlesnakes, there are a few things you can do to avoid a conflict. Keep your yard and walkways clear of debris and overgrowth so that it's easier to see the snake. And if you do see one, keep a safe distance. A good rule of thumb is to stay at a distance that is half the length of the snake. This will keep you out of the strike zone. Most snake bites occur when people try to catch or kill them, so don't do either. And when it comes to your canine hiking buddy, aversive training is good. And there are also rattlesnake vaccines available for dogs. Sorry. No vaccines for humans. We have some amazing video of some of the rattlesnakes we encountered. Be sure to check out our Instagram account at The Wild Pod, and you can find me at Chris Morgan Wildlife. We have more information about rattlesnakes on our website, thewildpod.org. And there, you'll also find information about supporting the wild through my organization, Chris Morgan Wildlife, on Patreon. Help fuel the next adventure. The wild is inspired not just by nature, but by people who work in it, love it, protect it. A very special thank you for their kind financial support to Jill and Scott Walker, Rose Letwin, Ellen Ferguson, Anna Kimball, John Taylor, Mark and Rebecca Wilkins, Bob Yellowlees, and Paul Lister. The Wild is a production of KUOW in Seattle and me, Chris Morgan, with support from Wildlife Media. Our producer is Matt Martin. Jim Gates is our editor and helped produce this episode. Our production team includes David Brown, Juan Pablo Chiquiza, April Craig, Kara McDermott, Tio Popescu, Darcy Riggins-Schmidt, and Brendan Sweeney. Our theme music is by Michael Parker. I'm your host, Chris Morgan. Thanks so much for listening. At SoundSide, we bring you news and conversation rooted in the Pacific Northwest. Hi, I'm Libby Denkman. I think of my job hosting SoundSide as, number one, asking tough questions of powerful people, the questions you, KUOW listeners, want answered. And two, bringing you a daily slice of the fascinating, confounding, and often goofy side of life in Washington State. Join me for SoundSide at noon and 8 p.m. on KUOW or anytime on the SoundSide podcast.